welcome to this Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. Working for difference, making business better and fairer. The DIFF series of podcasts is aimed at helping people from underrepresented groups get into and get on in the mortgage and protection industry. And to help everyone understand why genuinely prioritizing diversity is good for all of us individually, good for your business, and good for the mortgage market as a whole. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals participating and not necessarily of their respective companies, either past or present. Welcome, everyone, to another Diversity and Inclusivity Finance Forum podcast. And today I am joined by true industry legends, Rob Jupp, Group Chief Executive of Brightstar, and Ben Thompson, Deputy Chief Executive of MAB. And we are going to be tackling the issues of depression. And Rob is going to be talking from a very personal perspective, and Ben is going to be giving his point of view as a family member, having people close to him suffering from mental ill health. Depression is a common but serious mood disorder. It causes a persistent feeling of sadness and loss of interest with symptoms affecting how you feel, how you think, and handle daily activities such as sleeping, eating, or working. A diagnosis can be mild, moderate, or severe, depending on the impact of the symptoms. Though an individual may oscillate between these during one episode or across different episodes. In its mildest form, depression can mean low mood and spirits, able to still lead a normal life, but making this life more difficult. At its most severe, depression can be life-threatening. Treatment for depression can include a combination of lifestyle changes, talking therapies, and medicinal intervention. The recommended treatment is based on the severity of the depression and should be tailored to the experience of the individual. Depression is the predominant mental health problem worldwide. Globally, it's estimated that 5% of the adult population suffer from depression. That's approximately 280 million people worldwide. Though it affects around 1 in 10 to 1 in 6 people over the course of their lives, around 4% of children in the UK between the ages of 5 and 16 are depressed or anxious. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide and is a major contributor to the overall burden of disease. For women, far more women are diagnosed with depression than men. Depression can lead to suicide. Over 700,000 people die due to suicide every year, and it is the fourth leading cause of death in the age group 15 to 29 years. So let me just start by thanking you, Rob, and if the mortgage market could give a George Cross, I would give it to you right now. But Rob, you have depression. Would you like to tell us when you first realised what it was and how it started and manifested? Yes, Barrett, I'd be happy to. And and thank you for allowing me to talk about a very personal journey. And the first thing to say is that I'm just coming from this as a position of being a middle-aged man with depression. I'm not talking about the whole wider suite of of mental health um, support. I'm simply talking about depression. 
So I think I would use and cite my teenage years as the time when I started to feel different from how I'd felt before. And it's very easy to put that down to puberty, hormones, your body changing, your mood swings, et cetera, et cetera. But it just felt that mine were a little bit more up and down than those of my friends around me. And I think probably in late teenage years, I lost my mother very suddenly with cancer. I was at university at the time at 19. And I have to say there was, there was no support in 1991 for a teenager for any support for grief, etc. So I think I probably went into free flow depression. I struggled with drinking too much, which went into my proper adult life as a form of coping. In my 20s, I did absolutely nothing about it. I was in total denial. I just I was a bit moody, but I was just convincing myself that, you know, my life is far too happy and normal for me to have depression, which is a very big common misperception. It wasn't until I got into my late 30s when I had two children, I started to really feel that my behaviour was starting to affect my ability as a parent. And that's when I think I probably felt that it was the time that Mel's mental health was starting to be talked. And I felt brave enough, and it's a terribly shallow thing to say, but I felt brave enough to go and see my GP. And I remember going to the GP like it was yesterday. And I think I went in, I don't think I know I went in with sort of spiritless arbitrary, I've got a pain in my left leg. And then my GP said, why are you really here? I think there must be a pattern that he probably sees every day. And I said, well, I feel really sad. I don't really know why, because my lifestyle and the life I've got um, is my best life and I shouldn't feel like this, but I do. And I don't know what's wrong with me. And he asked me a few questions and he said, okay, from what I understand, I believe you've got severe acute depression and we've got two options. You either take his cell to me, and I'm not sure I would agree with this, but you take the... The easy option, which he cited as medication or the more difficult option, which is therapy. And I felt therapy was right for me. Again, I, I don't agree that medication is the easy option at all, but probably back then, almost a decade ago, it may have felt like that. So that was when I formally got the title of my medical records that I am a man with depression. But actually, I can cite my behaviour as changing to understand that it was changing because I was depressed, probably 14 or 15 years of age. Thank you for that, Rob. And Ben, when did you first come across mental ill health or in this instance specifically depression in your family? So there's an awareness as a child because of much wider family members, but probably when I was in my late teens or mid-teens, I'd say at the time, my elder brother, who I'm referencing in this particular example, went through some similar phases to what Rob cites, actually, interestingly. And I probably in my mind break it down from, or in a way which is sort of, he withdrew probably around the age of 16, 17. You could see he was just different I can only summarize it that way he was not speaking in any manner around his problems at the time he just seemed to me different then I'd say he really did withdraw there's a coupling up with heavy drinking very heavy drinking at the time to mask what he was obviously suffering from possibly had an inkling at the time but I definitely didn't see exactly what the problem was and sort of that went downhill considerably quite quickly over probably a 12 or 18 month period and, and sort of broke quite dramatically 
he didn't sleep for four or five nights, which I understand is quite consistent with some people's severe depression. And then literally just sort of broke over a family meal. And next thing I knew, he was away in hospital for four to six weeks and he's never been the same since. But we'll come on to the positive side of that later. But certainly what Rob cites in his personal example, triggered perhaps possibly by the loss of your mum, Rob, I can definitely recognise a lot of the signs you point to. It's interesting to know that some people say it can be a trigger and some people say it can be a combination of things. There's so little really known, isn't there, that it could be a whole combination of things. But Rob, let's move on to your treatment journey. So you started with therapy. What kind of therapy was it? And do you want to talk to us about the treatments you've had and successes, failures, and and actually the impact of some of the treatments on your life? Absolutely no problem. So I started off with the most commonly used form of therapy for people with depression, which is quinine CBT, cognitive behavioural therapy. It's in simple terms, it's talking therapy. You have a therapist that you select and you spend usually an hour session at a time at times it feels like all you've done for an hour is talked and the therapist for an hour has listened. But it's amazing to see the skill of the therapist in the background because they will have a pattern and a journey that they want to take you through. But at every stage, you're in control of the session. So there would be times when I would go and I'd want to talk about a specific example, the way I behave towards my children or a co-worker or my wife or how I was feeling. And then we'd spend time on that. And then there'd be another time that I'd feel a little bit more upbeat and I'd want to talk about, okay, what happens next? How am I going to be able to live my life moving forward with acceptance that depression is likely to be with me until my dying day? I think the thing is with therapy, how I found, again, this is my journey. What I found about therapists is I've gone through quite a few of them over the years. And I think perhaps more connected that I've probably exhausted a few of them in the time. But I think you get to a point when you're not getting anything from that therapist anymore, i.e., you kind of get bored and you're feeling less able or keen to, to open up and to be expressive. And that's probably my case was the time that I needed to move on. So over the course of the last 12 years, I've had five therapists in total. My latest therapist is at the more extreme end of the therapy session. He uses cutting edge techniques from the US, obviously the epicenter of global therapies in the US. And it's EMDR. It's a light treatment and I'm happy to go into it. But certainly if I shared with you what the session looks like, I'm entirely happy and confident that anyone that hasn't had EMDR will just go, that just sounds so far-fetched. But of all the sessions and all the therapy I've had, this latest lot has been the most effective for me. Maybe we can delve into it later. Have you also tried medication? And and what was that like if you have? So I spent, and this is just me being very honest, I spent years with the total misconception that taking medication was weak. It's pathetic to actually hear myself saying that, but I'm just levelling that that's how I felt. And the Prozac generation, where a lot of particularly middle-aged mums were kind of walking around almost like zombies because they were so heavily medicated with all the feeling of cold turkey when you need to get off. That was the preconceived, almost ignorant viewpoint that I had of medication. I had a, a particularly bad episode towards February of 2021, so fairly recently, which was possibly the lowest point I'd got to. And certainly... A lot of evidence is now coming out about the role of the pandemic on mental health. But, you know, it was a significant reason for it. And 
I was at a point where I kind of needed a, a really quick fix in order to keep me well. And my GP suggested that I should consider medication, which I wanted. And I was on a medication called sertraline to help with serotonin levels. Um, there's some evidence that suggests that lower serotonin levels in the brain is a trigger for depression. The jury's out yet. There's a lot of research is contrary to that. But anyway, the sertraline tablet was towards the lower dose of it. The first week was really difficult because it did make me feel different. It made me feel incredibly tired. And what it kind of felt like is I wasn't getting the high highs or the low lows. I was kind of always in the middle, which is really weird. When you have depression, your aspirational destination is just to be even tempered. That's what you want more than anything. You don't need the artificial highs because you kind of know that as a result of having those, there'll be some low lows. So it was effective. I was advised to continue that medication for 12 months. I made the decision after six months to come off that medication. It's not necessarily recommended by medical practitioners to do so, but it felt right for me. And I think probably for a week to two weeks after that, I did feel quite vulnerable and I did feel like almost like that comfort blanket had been taken away. But then I went back to therapy, which is when the EMDR came in. So I have medicated pretty recently. I work with a lot of people to support and mentor them. And what I would say is that there are numerous types of antidepressants available. It's very important to get the right dosage and the right one for the individual, which a GP will do. I spoke to friends who've had my brand of antidepressant and it hasn't worked for them. So it's always important and essential to seek the advice of a, a medical practitioner before you decide what's best for you. Well, I do want to come back to EMDR, but Ben, so what was the treatment that your brother had and how did it make you feel, whether it was medication or CBT or whatever? You said he was in hospital, so was he put in something like the Priory? Yes, this is slight time differences to Rob's position, but not much. You know, this is sort of mid-80s, so a few years before Rob's 1990, if I remember his date correctly. My observation on the, the treatment at the time is, in his particular case, it was probably perceived to be a crisis. The quick response was heavily medicate, sedate and sort of build back up from there. But the sort of the timing in the 80s and 90s in particular, I remember pretty well is I described some of the diagnoses and prescriptions as being quite lazy and medication was pretty much always the answer. Now, the problem with the meds is with some of the meds prescribed, it creates a couple of problems, I think. One, weight gain for some people, not everybody. And obviously, there's a cold turkey position at the end of it, which Rob described. But the weight gain is a difficult one for some people because it creates other problems. You lose that sense of well-being. That brings about other negativity. So I think for some people, not for everybody, medication is one of a number of choices and solutions. But certainly, if I look back to that time, I felt like it was a case of he was having many pills popped down his throat to keep him on the straight and narrow and build him back up again. And it, I was quite shocked by how much he had to take. So jump forward 10, 15, 20 years, the approach to treatment is entirely different. I personally have no experience of EMDR around the family, but I heard of it. Things have progressed very significantly to the positive. And I would go on to say that no prescription is the same for anybody. No solution is the same for anybody. Everybody's individual case is entirely different, although similar. And sometimes a combination of some medication, but other things like an outdoor experience, exercise. And two things which for me are incredibly important is talking 
and helping the patient, if I can call them the patient or the individual, feel valued as a person. So it's a combination of lots of things, one part of which is medication, but there are lots of other facets to how you treat people to get on the road for recovery and feel as good as they possibly can do. I can't screw you more, Ben, and I'm sure Rob would too. The drugs are better now than they were in the 80s, and there's a wider variety of them. And often you can probably take them and almost pick the one with the side effect that because they all have side effects you can pick the one with the side effect you can most cope with so this one might give you weight gain but this one will probably make you a bit tired and you can sort of say all right i'll, I'll have that one then but I can see what you mean i would like to talk to you about emdr so do you want to quickly explain what it is and why it's helped you so much absolutely so so this goes back to the early 70s in california where a berkeley graduate believed that she could help fix depression in the most acute cases by the ability of light transfer in in a sort of almost partial meditation. And she used three Vietnam veterans that had such bad PTSD that they were classed as medically insane and no one would be able to treat them until their dying day, which they thought would be relatively soon. She treated them and with all three men, she had the most amazingly positive result. So fast forward 30 years or so, it came into the UK. It's now actually one of the areas of treatment that the NHS have gained. So it's gone through the whole NHS bit. And basically what it does is with your therapist, you talk about the most traumatic periods of your life. So we'll all have, whether we're living with mental health or just in any normal state, if I may call it that, we'll all have points of our life which we would class as traumatic. And what this does via light treatment is the therapist will ask you why it was traumatic and ask you to visualize the scenery, what happened, what was said, what was your viewpoint. And of course, what you're doing is you're voicing it with your voice as a, in my case, as a 51-year-old man, but you're actually using your vision often as a teenager or an early 20. And what this does is he takes you back via the therapy to an environment which is almost identical. So it's almost like a bit of a time machine where you go back and you face that environment. And it is certainly not for the faint-hearted. It is pretty hardcore. And the first session, it's really important that you have someone able to drive you back because you are quite shaken up. But then after the experience and it brings you back, what you do is you talk about that experience with your eyes of present. And it's really interesting to see how you are able to analyze and cross-examine with the benefit of mature modern eyes that experience and you can articulate actually well it might not have been quite as i thought it was it may be slightly different there were triggers that created that environment where that happened and then you start focusing on the way forward and you stop focusing on the event and it's really strange for me and there were three major events i had it doesn't completely evaporate out of your mindset but it isn't a dominant thought process that you think about on a bad day, rumination perhaps 15, 20 times. You might think about that experience once a week and that just frees up so much of your mind more positive and progressive thought processes rather than holding yourself back by the anticipation of what happened in the past. So hopefully I've explained that Okay, I have to say, it was first explained to me, I, I was really dismissive. I thought, that sounds like complete claptrap, mumbo-jumbo. That's not going to work. That just feels like someone's going to rip me off. But I thought, well, I'll give it a go. And it's been genuinely life-changing for me. It's really, really worked for me. 
Right, my understanding is it it helps the brain to get over what I call proper trauma. Yeah. Isn't it? From sort of what could be many years ago. That's basically what it is, isn't it? Yeah, correct. Because fixating on the past is one of the big symptoms, isn't it, of depression? Well, it has been for me. Yeah, absolutely. And also your current mindset is very much dealt with sometimes by how you've dealt with situations in the present. And if you've dealt with situation badly, it tends to blow everything out of proportion. And I think, you know, there's still the same sort of traits of any conflict. But if you're able to understand actually what did happen as opposed to what you thought happened. And of course, the problem with the grey matter is as we get older, often we might fantasise or add bits or just sort of get to a point where we think something happened when it probably didn't happen like it was because you, you start losing your memory. So it's just been really, really good for me. We will come back to your low points shortly, but what I want to just discuss now, which I think is going to be very relevant for people listening to the podcast, is the impact of the depression and your work, Rob. So there you are, as you said in your LinkedIn piece, which was excellent. You're a hugely successful entrepreneur, huge amounts of success in your life, great amount of respect. What was it like suffering the way you did and building the businesses that you have and the pressures? Because, you know, we've been through great financial crisis, pandemics, et cetera, et cetera. Can you just tell me a little bit in your own words about how it impacted on your work? It's the most incredibly lonely experience because I've often used the analogy that being a leader in a business with depression is almost like you're an actor on a stage where the public persona that you give out as those that would know me. Well, I'm a big guy, I'm an extrovert. The public persona and the often reality and how you're feeling are often at polar opposites. So I've always had this view that, you know, a little bit stiff up a lip, always you're on a stage, everyone's looking at you, everyone's there to try and judge your mood on the mood of the business. So often it's been a, a very, very lonely experience because, you know, there, there'll be days when I'm at my lowest that I struggle to get out of bed. And yet within two hours, I'm leading a multi-million pound business that employs 100 people. And the transition between in bed with a state of almost paralysis to larger than life Rob at the workplace is just 180 minutes long. So it's really, really difficult. And what I think I've learned in all my businesses now, we have a, a well-being room. It's a timeout room which allows anyone to go in there and just engage, sign and just chill out for a while. And that's been really useful for me. The ability to just take myself out of the training floor where I'm not feeling like I'm I'm shallow or I'm, I'm just false. I can actually be myself and just sometimes sleep. And you, you're just so over-programmed with emotion. You just need to, to close your eyes and shut everything down almost like a PC and let yourself reboot, recalibrate to your back to a point where you think, okay, I'm all right now. In extreme occasions, I won't go into the office or I'll go into the office and I'll need to leave the office and go for a drive if it all gets too much. But I think I've been almost like an Oscar-winning actor over the years because even though I've been upfront as part of my recovery process with my mental health and my depression, it comes as a massive surprise to most people when I say, my name is Rob and I live with depression. They're like, you, Really? And it just so shows it's it's just the most invisible thing you can have. There's no scarring, there's there's no bandaging, but it's kind of there. And there's so many examples over the course of the history. People use the Gary Speed example as being a good one, where people go, Well, I never knew. I never knew. I thought they were okay. They looked and felt, you know, I'd never have thought of that person. 
But that's how crippling this is and how we have to challenge and tackle the stigma. And the only reason I'm doing this today and opening up myself like I can is to show that there is and should be no more stigma in this, particularly with middle-aged men of the, the world's worst. You know, that the stats, as you pointed out, you know, 5,000 people in England took their lives in 2021. 75% of them were men. The biggest age group for, for suicides is males aged between 50 and 54. Three times more women go to therapy as opposed to men. So we are terrible at dealing with this. And we celebrate this week, International Men's Week. We are terrible as a sex in dealing with this and we will not get better until we tackle this stigma and say it is okay not to be okay. And I think the only way we can do this is enough people coming forward and sharing their stories and I hope this gives some the strength and courage to do what they need to do to start getting better. The phrase that I remember hearing when I was researching about this and my own experiences through family is depression is an illness of the strong is not an illness of the week and, and that resonated with me. Ben, what's your view on, because we, when we were talking earlier, we, you had a very profound view on suicide. It's not the person who talks about being suicidal, it was a person who says nothing that you'd be worried about. Do you want to explore that a bit? So yes, I have had, if I could describe his first-hand experience of, of both suicide successful, if I can describe it that way, and, and sort of suicide attempts, uh, people close to me people I've played sport with very closely for many years and of course possibly people closer than that and I think there are two different instances I can describe and recall really well and certainly I go back to Rob's point around Gary Speed I think was the example Rob gave and one or two of the individuals I can think of I genuinely had no idea absolutely no idea probably won't be surprising to say they're male and I don't want to generalize but there is a bit of a theme that Rob reads out in his stats and they were desperately sad for a bunch of reasons I won't go into but the critical point there is I couldn't see it and I thought I was relatively close to them and the other maybe a bit closer to home is the genuine attempt when I was aware of the individual's suffering and you try and do as much as you can being someone who's loving and close to that individual and cares deeply for them but sometimes it's not enough and that's both are incredibly difficult but I think that all I'd say to finish off the question or the point is even if you see a slight withdrawal or darkening of an individual, say something, ask something, the worst that can happen is said, you're talking rubbish, why are you asking me that? That's the worst that can come from being seen to care and ask the question. And don't just assume people are okay if you see a slight change in them. Very difficult subject matter, very difficult to answer the question because for anybody who's been through it or been close to it, it's the most painful thing. And my thoughts go out with anyone who's been close to it. And obviously anybody who has been affected by any of the things we're talking about, there will be links on the August Solutions website where you can seek help from appropriate sources. Rob, shall we bring things up to date now with you coming to terms with living with your condition, almost being the master of it, if that's possible, and how you're relating to work and telling people about your depression and also being able to sit down with your children and discussing the situation with them. Do you want to tell us a bit about where you are now? Thank you. I think I'm in as good a place as I've been for 15 years right now. And there is a sense of caution when I say that, and you can probably tell that in my voice because you never quite know what future days, weeks or months are going to bring. But as I speak right now, and I think the main reason why I'm in the best place I've been for a while and with the understanding firstly that depression is something for me that will never go away it will be with me for the rest of my life so with the acceptance that it's there 
And there's years I spent trying to find ways of getting rid of it. I have to just work my way through and make it a full-time job to survive and thrive with my medical condition of depression. And there's a lot of things that, that I have done, which will certainly not work for others. I think Ben's point about talking is the most underrated and the most effective form of coping. You know, talking situations through and telling someone, sometimes close to you, which is the hardest thing to do, of why you feel the way you do is hugely empowering. I can't overemphasize the importance. But also routine. So I have exercise. I'm not surprised. Ben mentioned that earlier. Exercise is really important. I'm certainly not a guy that has a natural magnetic pull to the gym. But walking, exercising, I try and cut down on my alcohol consumption, which isn't always easy because I enjoy beer and I enjoy a glass of wine. But I'm aware that it's likely to affect me a day or two afterwards. I think I also try and enjoy the good times a bit more. I think with the knowledge that when something lovely happens, I get plenty of photographs on my phone. I try and live in the moment as much as possible and not move on too quickly if things are going really well. On the understanding, if things are going great, I'm having a really good day or a really good couple of days. Um, I want to celebrate that and I want to try and get those to be a bit contagious and last for a few more days. So that's really, really important. I think the final thing is the acceptance that when bad days come and they will continue to come, I have within my toolbox methods and ways that work for me that I feel I can, even with the very worst days, get through them and not get to a, a low low or let's call it as it is. Bad days now will not involve me contemplating and considering suicide and there was bad days where that was an active consideration that I was so low and I felt so worthless that the thought of taking my life was seemingly the most unselfish thing that I could possibly consider. And when people say suicide is so selfish, it's such an underestimated and un a misunderstood viewpoint of the person that's taken their life. Because trust me, that person is not doing it for attention or because they want to make a generation sad. They think it's the most natural thing to do. And it, most people that do take their lives actively plan it, sometimes over many, many months, in order to efficiently do it in a way that is so personal to them. But the point is, that is the extreme tip of the iceberg. Most of us, and a lot more of us over the fullness of time, will do what I'm able to do now, which is to live your life, your best life with depression, to have normal family and career relationships and hopefully die in your bed age 90 surrounded by all your loved ones having lived your best life in brackets even though that's included living with depression. Fantastic words, Rob. And actually some of the things I've picked up and want to reinforce is the huge importance of stopping and appreciating the joy that you do have, that everybody has have, does have and can have. And don't just rush through it, just, just to take a moment and to like think back and say, this is brilliant. I won my ninth British Mortgage Award, Rob, or how many other you've won. But that's great. Ben, having a family member with depression when you're younger, how does that affect you? What kind of life choices have you made as a result of your family members suffering from mental ill health? I've been completely candid. I think when you're younger, you feel very fortunate. Personally, it's not you because you're part of the same family, obviously. Second thing, you probably start to realise you need to stand on your own two feet perhaps more than, in my case, my brother, who needed a lot more care and attention than I 
certainly thought I needed at the time. And you become more independent because you suddenly realize it doesn't take long to process that over the course of years, you're going to have to very much pursue your own way more because my brother needed a lot more care than I did. And you look much, much further down the line. This is very relevant to me at the moment for reasons I won't bore you with, but there will come a time where on the assumption he continues to live a healthy life, I will probably need to look out for him when I'm older, when his current sort of situation changes and he needs a lot more care in older life. And I know that's coming and I feel very privileged to be able to do that with him and actually look forward to it. But I think the things that strike me Five words, I think. Fortunate is a word I've used already because I wasn't the one with the unlucky hand he got dealt with, I think. There's fear as well because of all the things we've discussed. And thanks for being so open, Rob. I think everyone can understand the fear I refer to there in having a brother who's got a very similar condition. There's a strong degree of responsibility as well because you suddenly think, although he's, in my case, he's my older brother, I will end up caring for him throughout my entire life in different ways and looking out for him in different ways. To finish with two points, I think guilt I don't like that, but I have to be honest, you sometimes feel guilty because you always want to do more. You can never do enough for someone who's suffering. As a close brother, and we're incredibly close, I can never do enough for him. And if I don't talk to him for four or five days or see him for two weeks, it really bothers me. And that impacts lifestyle, as you'd expect. And a final point, the positive bit for me is motivation. I find probably the what comes out of feeling fortunate about the hand I was personally dealt with. I feel incredibly motivated towards doing as well as I possibly can in life so I can look after him in the coming months and years ahead. So probably for me, being very open, that's how it affects me and continues to. That's amazing, Ben, that level of consideration, care and indeed respect is awesome. And if I'm sure many people would agree, your brother is in some ways at least very lucky to have somebody like you in their life. Can we begin to wrap up now with just a discussion on what is being done in the industry to sort of tackle this, to help it, uh, what more can we do as an industry, as companies and as individuals to recognise, help and support people suffering from depression or, or other forms of mental ill health? And, and I'll kick off with you, Rob, because being somebody who has depression, you've created some amazing things at Brightstar. Uh, do you want to sort of list two or three of your little successes that you do that you think other companies could copy to the well-being of all their staff and themselves? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So I am in the fortunate position and, and I, times like this, count myself also as being lucky in the sense that as leading my organisation, I set the culture and if you've got the ultimate senior exec in the business that says, I am a mental health sufferer, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay not to be in this bullshit world of perfection. I think you set the, the culture and the agenda with your own business. So first and foremost, I've said to my organisation, look, whatever is happening to you or your family, we have the love and support that will protect you where we possibly can. And to back that up with actions rather than words, we ensure within each of the portfolio company, there is a significant number, at least 20% of each of the employees in each group that are mental health first aid trained. So they go through a, a virtual course, uh, which takes three hours and two days in order to get to that point. And effectively, we share within all of our communal areas exactly who these people are if they've got any any expertise in any given condition and they will be available in confidence you know night and day to support our co-workers i think sort of the final point really is feeling that there'll be no prejudice towards anybody with any issue at all and that's the quantum leap where we've come as a business 
And I think we're much better than most, Barrett, as the mortgage industry in working this. I think we're much more forward thinking and mature, but there is still a most horrific prejudice about having mental health. There will be people, sadly, I'm confident, as a result of listening to this podcast, will look differently about me and not in a positive way. But actually, that's the way I look at things. Their problem, not mine. I think it's important to ignore the ignorant few and ensure that the the bulk of people out there that want support, need support, feel that it's okay to say, I don't feel myself. I I feel I I need to talk to someone. I, I need some help and support. And that can only come if not as a strap line uh, in terms of you know good social responsibility, but actually to actually be the living embodiment of it and ensure that every person within your business and the people around you also get the support. So what a lot of us will do is not just me, there's plenty of us around, plenty of, of industry leaders that have also shared that they are mental health sufferers and are available to be able to support people that might need to understand what the first step is. So if anyone's listening to this and needs support in utter confidence, I know there'll be the various groups available, but I'd stick my hat in the ring and certainly put my details on there if if A3 are happy and certainly be there to, to talk to anyone that feels like they want to talk about this. And Ben, what else could they be doing? I know you've done a root and branch review of, of your EDI and uh, policy and, and invisible differences in mental health will have played a big part in that. Is, is there anything else we should be doing? I mean, personally, my concern is there'll be a lot of young people out there suffering from some kind of mental ill health and they'll be pushing their way through it somehow because they're too scared to say, this is my problem because they could think it's going to have a negative impact in, on their career. And what can we do as an industry and businesses to say, we're not looking at your condition, we're looking at your core talent, and that's not changed. Yeah, and no, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think the very first thing that leaps to mind is I think you've got to, you've got a responsibility in the same way as Rob has as a business leader to create a culture of openness and genuinely a culture where people are prepared to say in confidence to a line manager or colleague or someone in HR, I don't feel good and not to be frightened of doing it or worst case, feel like they have to resign and leave because they feel depressed. That's an easy thing to say. It's a hard thing to do. And it's something which talking very locally or parochially, I think, you know, we spend a lot of time on and I'd like to feel that we've made strides on that. So I think being open and having people feel comfortable, that is so important. I think if you do that, you get a lot of payback from your colleagues as well, because I think two ways things can go. It's the sort of the leave and run away because the culture's wrong, or it's actually get a lot more out of that individual because the culture's right. And more importantly, they feel better for it. And that's a really positive virtuous circle. I think some of the stuff Rob talks about are not going to duplicate, but create quiet rooms. Some people call them prayer rooms and that's suitable. Some people call them quiet or breakout rooms, but a similar thing, allow people to get away for a bit. Well-being rooms, I think Rob has. Well-being rooms, in fact, yes, definitely. You know, provide events to support people around sort of well-being generally, actually. And I think the final bit for me is probably try not to feel responsible as a senior manager or a business leader, not to overburden individuals generally but in particular those who may be assigned posted before occasionally they have had struggles with that and with their mental well-being so that comes down to how you train managers but fundamentally as a leader of a business it's primarily your responsibility yes very good very good thoughts from both of you and it isn't an issue that is going to where going to go away but i just think from a productivity perspective 
helping people get through their struggles, the payback is potentially enormous. And I cry at the idea of the number of people whose talents have been wasted and lost to the industry because we've not really done enough or been aware enough to actually help get the best out of them and help them get the best out of themselves. So thank you, Ben. Thank you, Rob. And as I said, Rob, if I could give you a George medal, right? Mortgage market doesn't do one, but you are a change maker. And one of the reasons you are a change maker is the way you've tackled your personal situation and and use that to help others. So from the bottom of my heart, thank you both. I'd also like to thank Rosie Higgins and Unquiet Media for providing me with enormous amounts of data and stats and to remind everybody that it's down to us all to help make our industry a better place to work for everybody. Thank you very much and see you next time. If you have enjoyed this episode and want diversity and inclusion to have as wide an audience as possible, Make sure you share with your friends and colleagues and hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode.